So we're going to look at Acts chapter 21 and 22 through 29, or 20, 20, through 22, 29. Um, the 22 uh, is what Trish read, because I'm going to be talking mostly from 21, hence the reason for her reading just that section this morning. And, and I want to, before I get started, I just want to mention that if, I don't know, if Daryl or David Kreuter or whoever was up here preaching about these same sections, uh, you would hear some things that are very different than what I'm going to share with you. Because every one of us brings our own personality, our own perspective, our own background into this. Um, and, and it's going to, so, so what, you know, I might think this is more important. They might think that's more important. I'm just kind of letting you see this here. So my, my point is that you need to keep studying and reading in this as we're going through it, because you're not going to get everything about Acts 21 through 22 here today from me that God wants you to have. So you need to be reading and studying along with us in this, okay? Just a little heads up there. We've said that before. You're also going to need your Bible. You know, may have noticed already that in the bulletin there are no notes. I know that's a little unusual for me, but uh, I either do a PowerPoint or I do notes. This morning I did a PowerPoint. Sorry, you could have no notes. So have your Bible handy because you're going to want to refer to it. Uh, and again, I, we're going to be mostly in, in chapter 21. So let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you are a gracious God who deals with us right where we are. And Lord, this morning as we approach your word, we're inviting you to to speak into our hearts, to let us see things that we need to see, to, to let us understand things that we need to understand, to walk more fully according to your plan for us. And God, we trust that you will do that because you are faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, as we start this morning, I got pretty excited that in the very first verse in Acts 21 that our school is mentioned we came by a straight course to Kos. All right, it's probably not. Are you, are you following me there? It's okay. That's kind of why I had that there. Um, it says, we came to a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail when we had come in sight of Cyprus. Leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but a lot of times when I read this, this kind of section, it's really easy to go, okay, they were traveling, and that's nice, get on to the, the important stuff. And there, there's probably not a lot of important stuff in this section, but I do want us to get a, a feel of where they're at. So give me that next one. I got a little map there. Um, and you can see kind of on the, in the middle left on the screen there, it says cost. It's probably really tiny, right? Yeah. Uh, and then they went on to Rhodes, and then they went on to Patera, which is right there at the bottom of Lycia. And then they sailed and went past Cyprus. Cyprus is on the left, okay? And they came to Tyre. And then we'll, we'll see later on, they went on to, uh, to Ptolemus and Caesarea and then on to Jerusalem from there, okay? I just want to get us a, a little bit. That's the Mediterranean Sea. This is a pretty big area. I'm, I'm actually still amazed that people used to... This is 2,000 years ago before electronic communications. They were sailing out there and... To me, this is crazy, but anyway, it happened, and I just think it's, it's kind of cool, so I wanted to put that in there. 
In verse 10, we encounter a prophet named Agabus. We ran into Agabus back in chapter 11. If you remember, he had uh, foretold a famine that was coming up. And this time, he, he gives what, what I would call a prophetic, symbolic illustration. Um, those types of things are fairly common in Scripture, actually. God would speak to a prophet and have him do or demonstrate something that God was about to do. So, for example, uh, God had Ezekiel take a brick and say, this brick is Jerusalem. What happens to this brick is going to happen to the city. God uh, told Isaiah, I'm glad the kids are gone, God had Isaiah walk naked and barefoot and say, that's what's going to happen to uh, those that are going into captivity. Um, It's just the, and this isn't, these aren't just nice pictures. These These are prophetic realities that God is bringing about. And so we, uh, we, we see this again here in Acts 21. Agabus takes, his, uh, takes Paul's belt and he binds his own hands and his feet and says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So, so Agabus is playing out this role and showing this is what's going to happen. But this is not the first time that Paul has heard something like this. In the last chapter, Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. That doesn't have the feel of Holy Spirit just speaking to Paul individually. We, we get the impression there in every city, like there are people who are saying this to Paul. So he's hearing this over and over. And Paul knows that there is something not good, if you will, waiting for him in Jerusalem. Even just a few verses back, right after that traveling section that we just looked at, verse 4, it says, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So their understanding from Holy Spirit is that something bad is going to happen to Paul if he goes there. So God had told Paul repeatedly that imprisonment and afflictions were waiting for him in Jerusalem. And God had told other people the same thing. Even even Luke, I I find this interesting, in in verse 12 of the chapter that we're in, when we heard this, when we heard this, Luke is including himself, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Wait, what? Luke and others, there may be others in the traveling party, maybe others that are in that city are saying, don't go, Paul, don't go, go to Jerusalem because you're going to get hurt. These, they, they all realize that there is something bad waiting for Paul. It's what the Holy Spirit had clearly said over and over. But here's what I want us to recognize. Paul and the other people have arrived at very different conclusions about what to do about what the Spirit said. See, Paul's response is, bring it. The other people, are, are, their response is, we don't want something bad to happen to our brother Paul. And both of these, if you think about it, both of these are godly responses. Let me put this into a, a different context. Maybe this might help us kind of grapple with this a little bit. Let's just say Uh, that many years ago, there was a young man who lived in Washington, D.C. He was brilliant. He was energetic. He was handsome. He was highly educated. He was articulate. He was full of charisma. He was well-connected. And people in the know recognized, had their money on, if you will, that he's going to be president at some point. And then one day, he got radically saved, and he left Washington, D.C., 
And so he's out traveling across the country evangelizing. And not only are people getting saved, but there are entire pockets of population that are radically transformed because of his ministry. But now he's to the point where he, he just has this sense that he needs to go back to D.C. And so he's on the West Coast and he's traveling that direction. And for whatever reason, he stops in here on a Sunday morning. Maybe he came to family Bible camp years ago and has fond memories of the place, whatever. So he's here. And you also need to know that some time ago he had an accident and so he walks with a cane. And so he is sitting here on the front row on Sunday morning and Daryl comes in and grabs his cane. He's sitting, he doesn't need the cane right now. Okay, so don't panic, he's not. So Daryl takes his cane and he starts beating himself with the cane. Hard, I'm not gonna do that because I don't like pain. And he says, this is what's going to happen to the owner of this cane if you go back to Washington, D.C. Now, we know Daryl's track record. This is not just some guy spouting off. We're pretty confident this is accurate. This is what God's saying. So what's our response? What are we going to do? I would suggest to you that there would be some people here who would say, hey, don't go. We, we, don't, we don't want you to get hurt. We, you know, we, we know of you from your news clippings and that kind of stuff. We don't really know you personally, but you're here and we're saying, don't go. There might be somebody else that says, hey, you need to get a, a handgun for self-defense. Somebody says, hey, you need to get a bodyguard at least. I mean, all of those would be things that we might think are good things to have happen. But the question, I think, is what does God want? See, it seems to me that there's two reasons. i got to get rid of this, sorry. There's two reasons that God would speak something to somebody ahead of time about what's going to happen. One is to get that person to not do whatever it is, to, to, to keep them away from that, that, that interaction, that whatever it is that's going to happen, all right? The other is to warn them that that's going to happen so that when they get there, they're not freaked out by it. Those are the two possible options. And clearly, in this section of Scripture, Paul is seeing the second option. He's being warned, so he's not going to panic when he gets there. See, Paul's reaction is, God, as long as you're glorified... I'm good. There's a song that we've done at our home group that says, shall I take from your hand your blessings, yet not welcome any pain? There should be a, yeah, there we go. Shall I thank you for days of sunshine, yet grumble in days of rain? Shall I love you in times of plenty, then leave you in days of drought? Shall I trust when I reap a harvest, but when winter wind blows, then doubt? Oh, let your will be done in me. In your love I will abide. Oh, I long for nothing else as long as you are glorified. That seems to be Paul's attitude in this whole thing. God, whatever you want, I trust you. He says in verse 13, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. As long as you're glorified, God, I trust you. But see, the, the others are very concerned for Paul's well-being. They don't want anything bad to happen. Okay, all of that to say, even when God shows us something prophetically, there is still often a, a measure of discernment that is necessary for us to exercise. We can't just take 
what Holy Spirit says and arrive at our own conclusions because on our own, we may well arrive at the wrong conclusions. It's possible that you and I can be tainted by our, by our culture, by our upbringing to jumping to wrong conclusions. For example, uh, and this is, uh, this is simply an illustration, if Holy Spirit said that there are times ahead for our country that are going to be financial difficulties, our natural inclination might be that we need to put aside years and years worth of freeze-dried foods. Now, I'm not telling you not to do that. Don't mishear me, okay? But what I am saying is we need to ask God, what are you saying in this? Not just what I want. We, we, can, we can arrive at conclusions that seem logical and practical in the natural realm and still not be what God wants. That's what those people did back there in Acts 21. They all said, Paul, don't go. We don't want you to get hurt, buddy. But Paul knew he needed to go. And this is especially important for us to recognize when, it's, when there is a word for someone else, like this here in, in Acts 21. Then there's another added dimension. See, it wasn't Luke or any of the others who were going to face the consequences that Paul was going to face. So even though God had apparently told plenty of other people that difficulties were in store for Paul, it was still Paul who had to make the final decision about what that meant for him. So what, is this, what does this mean for him? What should he do as a result of this word? Does, does, does he need to change his course or direction as a result? Those are not things that other people get to decide. Now, I would suggest that if we get a word uh, personally and we're not quite sure that we, that we get some counsel perhaps, maybe you know, if you're married, your spouse, uh, church leadership, whatever, um, but if you get a prophetic word, it's for you. Ultimately, it's your call as to what you're going to do with it. It's not for somebody else to, to make that decision. Now, if the word's for somebody else, that's a totally different thing, okay? But I would suggest that Paul's attitude is great here. It's, a, it's just a great attitude, I think. See, our culture teaches us to, to shy away from anything that's, that's uncomfortable, that might cause us difficulty, we don't want to experience those types of things. We just don't. But that's a cultural response. It's not a biblical one. Jesus was pretty clear. He said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of ambiguity in that statement. It's just pretty straightforward. It's going to happen. And, and, and we should also note in this that Paul has, at this point, depended on the Holy Spirit enough that he knows that voice. Remember, Holy Spirit stopped him. They were trying to go here, and he said, no, go there instead. He's listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. This is not, this is not Paul's first rodeo in dealing with the Holy Spirit, all right? He knows that voice, and he knew enough that regardless of what lay ahead, that he knew he could trust God, and so he does. All right, enough with that. Let me point out something that I, I, I think is, is interesting. Paul knows he's going to Jerusalem. He's known actually for some time. Back in, in chapter 19, uh, verse 21, Paul says, now after these events, Paul 
resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So, so Paul is not expecting to die in Jerusalem. He's expecting to go on. Whoa, I just lost my little pack, pack here. Uh-oh, is this still working? We're good. Okay, whew, sorry. He's expecting to go on to Rome. He's not expecting to die in Jerusalem. So, so here, here's, a, here's an interesting quirk on this thing. We don't know the exact time frames of many of the things that happen in the New Testament. But historians tell us that it seems like that the, from the time that, that Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, and between that and the time that he wrote the, the letter of Romans, that those two, two events happen in pretty close proximity. Most historians say it's in the same year. Some say it's within weeks of one another, of when he wrote Romans and when he was arrested in Jerusalem. Okay? He's never been to Rome, but he's writing to the, the, the church there. And in Romans chapter 15, Paul says, Since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing. Again, remember, he's not been there before. He's coming. He says, I'm going to see you in passing. So he's not even expecting to stay there. He says, as I go to Spain and to be helped on on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So there's this expectation in Paul that he is is not, he's certainly not going to stay in Jerusalem. He's going on to Rome but he's not even expecting to stay in Rome. He's expecting to go on from there to Spain. Now, you have to understand that Spain at that point was the furthest western point of the known world. So Paul is is taking Jesus literally of taking his his word to the ends of the earth. That's the end as far as Paul knew. And he is also taking very seriously his calling as the the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul's going to take this as far as he possibly can. He's doing what Jesus said to do. But I want us to recognize Paul's not not planning to stay in Jerusalem. He's not even planning to stay in Rome. He's he's keeping going. And then uh, I also saw something that I'd never seen before until I was studying for this, and then David mentioned it last week, which I felt kind of silly. So there's this parallel between Um, Jesus going up to Jerusalem to suffer and die and Paul going to Jerusalem with full expectation that he's going to suffer there. So there's a parallel between those. But I want to add a suggestion, a possibility here. I think perhaps Luke is showing us this because he wants us to understand that this is not supposed to be some strange kind of thing. Right, I really did do it, didn't I? This is... Sorry. Difficulties. Nope. Oh, boy. Look at the bright side. It's my microphone, not churches. Okay, we're going we're gonna to see if we can make this work. So I think, I think Luke is showing us this, so that we get the idea that this is not supposed to be some strange thing. This is, this is a normal, kind, normal part of the Christian life, is that we go through difficult times, that we're going to suffer. Again, um, you know, G- Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Think about this. While Paul was in Rome, he wrote his second letter to, to his son in the faith, Timothy, 
And in it, he said this, Paul wrote, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul is not only speaking truth there, he's speaking truth from his experience. He knows this is reality. It's gonna happen, guys. Don't be rattled by it. It's just the way it is. Sorry. Okay, that went over big. All right, so when, when just telling you how like it is. So when, when Paul gets to Jerusalem, he meets there the brothers, uh, beginning in verse 17. When he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. When they heard it, they glorified God. You know, that's one of the main reasons that we encourage uh, testimonies on Sunday morning of what God has done in and through you as you're out and about. Because when we hear those things, what do we do? We glorify God, right? I mean, that's what's going on here. We, we, that, that's a good thing to have happen. They said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. We, we saw earlier in Acts on a couple of different occasions that thousands of people had come into the kingdom on the day of Pentecost, at least a, a pretty sizable percentage of those were people from out of town. But apparently, numbers of people there in Jerusalem had continued to come into the kingdom of God and so James says here, many thousands of Jewish Christians are there in, in Jerusalem and they are all zealous for the law, he says. They, they, didn't, they didn't cease being Jewish when they became Christians, when they became believers. You know, I've ministered in, in Jewish Christian congregations, what many would re refer to as completed Jews or Messianic congregations. They still read the Torah. They, they still uh, celebrate festivals and feasts. And that, that's not, Jesus is in an add-on in that. He's the completion, all right? But understand that, that uh, many of those things are simply a part of their, their culture, their heritage, their background. And so the same thing here in Acts 21. Thousands of Jews are born again, but they were also still zealous for the law. And I want us to understand there's nothing wrong with that inherently, as long as it's not what they're basing their salvation on, okay? And, and James and the others... Have, have made it clear previously, and they even repeat it, he, he repeats it here in this section, about the, the law not being a big deal for Gentiles. Based on what Peter and, as well as Paul, had said, um, what they had experienced, um, they had decided it wasn't necessary for, for Gentiles to be circumcised, to become Jewish in order to become followers of Christ. But those who were Jewish, they didn't just jettison all of that stuff when they became believers. It was a part of them. Um, Jesus was the fulfillment. So they're trusting in Christ for their salvation, but they're zealous for the law. They're, ze they're zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So there are these Jewish believers who have been told, I want to know by who, who's spreading these rumors? I, sorry, that just bothers me. Um, anyway, they've been told that Paul is teaching other Jews, those who are not in Israel, that, that they don't need to follow the Jewish customs. They can just do whatever they want to. See, you have to understand, from the Jewish perspective, this is the language of apostasy. This Paul guy is telling people they don't need to worry about anything that we have taught for generations. 
They're not worried about, he's not worried about our, our people or our God, really, our, our laws. And, and, and that's, that's not true. He taught that kind of thing to the Gentiles, okay? I'll give you that, but not to the Jews. And there's a world of difference between telling Gentile believers um, that they don't need to be circumcised because they don't need to become Jews in order to become a Christian. There's a world of difference between that and, and extrapolating that out to suggest that, that Jews should abandon their ancestral teachings. That was something Paul was not doing. This was, after all, the same Paul who said to the Jews, I become a Jew. But regardless, the, the, Jewish, the Jerusalem believers there had been told all this stuff by somebody, and so to ward off any misunderstandings, James tells Paul, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Let everybody see, Paul, that you are observing the law. Not only that, but you're helping others to observe the law that you haven't thrown out the, the Jewish customs, that everything that, they, that they've heard about you is not true. And it's actually, a, I think, a pretty good plan. And so Paul agrees to do this, this symbolic act. Uh, you know, it's, it's the, 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 the don't tell them, show them, let them see it. Um, and so he agrees to this. And, and please remember that the point of this is that... Um, the, the, the Jewish Christians there would, wouldn't believe those false rumors, that they would recognize that what they had heard was not true. And, and I would suggest that it almost worked until the Jews from Asia show up, some non-Christian Jews from someplace else came and got involved. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law of this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Do, do you remember the Jews from Asia? They were the ones that rioted and stoned Paul. He's not on their top 10 friends list, all right? And, and so he, he, he's almost done with this ritual, this, this idea that, that James and the others had had Right, right there at the, the, the very end, they're, they're seeing the finish line and the Jews from Asia show up and the whole thing falls apart. Let me read part of that again. Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people of the law, people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Let me point out some important facts here. Paul was not teaching everyone everywhere against the people in the law and this place. Paul did not bring Greeks into the temple. Paul did not defile the temple. None of these charges is true, not one. Now, they might not all be blatant lies. The people who said them might actually believe that they're true. But believing that something that is a lie is true doesn't make it true. That's something that our culture could do well to learn. And so all of these falsehoods, all of these untruths are leveled against Paul. And, and even though they're not true, it didn't stop people from believing them, right? And so a riot ensued. Let me read you just a few, uh, a few key phrases from this. All the city was stirred up. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. They were seeking to kill him. These sound a little serious, do you think? 
dragging him out of the temple, they're seeking to kill him. The whole city's stirred up. And then it says, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. You might remember that, that term cohort. Uh, we heard it back in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius was a centurion in the Italian cohort. In this context, a cohort is a division of the Roman army. It typically was five to 600 soldiers. There's a centurion who is over 80 to 100 soldiers. There are several of those in a cohort. The tribune is the guy who's over everything, all of that, okay, that whole division. So he's the guy who hears about stuff being stirred up, and so he's not going to hesitate. He's, let, let's move. And, and the people were obviously beating Paul because when the soldiers showed, showed up, it says they stopped beating Paul. And then the soldiers get everything under control. And I'm just trying to get through this. We don't read every, every word there. Sorry, and I'm, I'm encouraging you to read it on your own. Uh, and, and Paul starts talking to the tribune. And, and the tribune seems bewildered and asks, are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Let, let me say this. The, the conflicts that our nation has been involved in in the Middle East in the last couple of decades you know, obviously, I feel bad for the soldiers, but the people that I really feel sorry for are those who are, have some kind of leadership role who they're trying to negotiate with the locals because everything in their life they look at completely different than Westerners look at it. We're not just talking a language barrier. We're talking an everything barrier. I mean, I how do you even do that job? I can't even fathom it. And I would suggest to you that that's in essence, what the tribune here is up against. Um, he doesn't understand how the Jews could possibly be so upset about someone saying or doing something against their religion. Th that's, that's, that's like wacko from his perspective. That's, that, that's out there someplace. This is crazy talk. There, so he goes to the, the logical conclusion, this guy must be some, some crazed revolutionary. He's got to be a terrorist. That's what he's thinking. Because this, certain, this, is, this riot, this big riot has to be about something serious, not about their silly religion. Come on. But he's as wrong as wrong can be. So Paul asked for permission to address the crowd. And just an aside here, if this is me, and I'm just, just being honest with you, if this is me and the soldiers have just gotten me away from this crazed mob, in my mind, the next step is let's get me further away. Let's get me out of here completely. I'm pretty sure that my first response is not to go back and preach to them. I'm just being honest with you. But that's Paul's first response. And that challenges me. Maybe that should be my first response. We sang this morning, burn like a fire in me, light a flame in my soul for all the world to see. Maybe that should be our first response. Anyway, Paul starts off by sharing his testimony. He starts at the very beginning. I was born in, in uh, uh, Tarsus. And then, and then he mentions that he was educated by a man named Gamaliel. Now, it was, I don't know, last time or the time before that I preached, um, I mentioned that Gamaliel is one of the most respected rabbis in the history of Israel, and he's alive at this time. People would have known who that is, great amount of respect for him. So Paul has just, Paul has just given himself more credibility in the, the eyes of the people that are there. 
I was educated by Gamaliel. <laughs> oh, mark that one up. And then he tells about persecuting believers, and he says that the, the high priest and the council can verify what he's saying. In fact, they were the ones who actually commissioned me to do this. Now, I got to think that there are very few people in that crowd who have ever even talked to the high priest, let alone receive a commission from him to do something, do his work. So again, Paul has just elevated his credibility. He's, he's gone up a notch or two. And then if you've been with us through this whole series, the next part, he actually gets into his experience in Acts chapter 9. Um, here's what happened to me. Some of this is actually word for word right out of Acts 9. Uh, he tells about his journey to Damascus. He talks about the, the great light from heaven, his encounter with the Lord. And it's important for us to understand that at this time uh, in Jewish history, and this is still true somewhat today, but at this, especially at this time, the mark of being a prophet, a spokesperson for God, is that you had an encounter with God, something that was outside of the ordinary that most average people just didn't have you had encountered God somehow. I mean, think about the, the Old Testament. Think about the people who spoke for God. Think about Abraham. Think about Moses. Think about Isaiah. Think about Jeremiah. Think about Ezekiel. I mean, on and on. All of these different people who had this encounter with God, that was the mark of a spokesperson for God. And so, so Paul is saying, hey, I had an encounter with God. I was in his presence. So again, more, more credibility. And then he talks about Ananias praying for him and he goes back to Jerusalem where he has another encounter there in the temple with God. I mean, you know, all of these, these amazing things. And, and the crowd during this whole time, they're just silent. Storytelling was part of their culture, so this was normal. But, but this guy is telling quite the story here because he, you know, he, 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 was, he was educated under Gamaliel. He's, he's encountered God on two different occasions. I mean, just all of this stuff. And then everything fell apart when he mentioned that God sent him to the Gentiles. Whew. Let me, let me try to frame this a little bit for you. And this is going to be challenging for us because we live in the St. Louis area where we're a little bit more sports hospitable, if you will. But in a lot of cities, if... There is a hometown sports hero, and you know, the, we all love him. He's great, and he goes to another team. And that team comes back to that city. He is now the subject of derision. He is ridiculed. He is mocked. People might even throw stuff. There, there may even be threats at times. I mean, that, we don't encounter that here, but places like the city of brotherly love and um, other, other places like... Yeah, so, so just crazy kind of stuff. So, so take that mindset, take that way of thinking and multiply it by about 10 billion and that's what's going on here in the Jewish mind. No, Paul, our God did not send you to the Gentiles. That's crazy talk. Kill him! That's what they're doing at that point. All right, they didn't actually say kill him, but the words there say, away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. I don't know, this kind of reminds me of another mob scene in Jerusalem where they were all yelling, crucify him, right? Just saying. And it almost, to me, seems like Paul should have known that this was going to be their reaction. But Paul seems like this eternal optimist. Maybe, maybe he was hoping that they would remember that the promise that, that all nations would be blessed through Abraham's seed. Maybe he was hoping that they'd remember that Israel would be a light 
to the nations. Maybe he was hoping that they'd remember that even the enemies of Israel would one day come and worship Yahweh. Paul knew all of those promises and a lot more. And maybe he was hoping that the others would remember those also. But they were thinking in a totally different direction. No, Paul. Now, he didn't send you to the Gentiles. Uh Uh-uh. So it turns ugly again, and I find the, the, the remedy, the solution to the situation to be interesting. The, the soldiers, again, they pull him back away from this crazed mob who's trying to kill him, and they take him inside, and they're going to whip him. Yeah, I, I, again, I'm putting me in this situation. I'm like, oh, good, they got me. Wait, you're going to do what to me? Maybe I want to go back out there. I don't know. You with me? Just seems kind of crazy. Out of the frying pan into the fire, right? And, and so then, then comes the part where they, they, they stretch him out. And you guys have, have seen this probably in movies where you know, they, they shackle the wrists and the ankles. And they're, they're stretching him out, got chains. Can't, can't do anything in this position, right? And it's when he is like that, when, after they've already stretched him out to, to do this, that all of a sudden, Paul mentions, he could have said something earlier. But he waits. And, you know, I'm, I'm picturing the guy with the whip. Is, it's standing there ready to go. And, and Paul's like, um, by, the, by the way, is, should you be doing this? Is it, is it legal for you to, 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 to flog a Roman citizen without a trial? You know, and then, and then everybody panics. I just... Through everything that Paul goes through, there seems to be this incredible sense of peace in him. He never seems to be bent out of shape. He never seems to be frantic. I mean, read this entire chapter. Read the the rest of the, the book of Acts. Not once do we get the slightest hint that Paul is worried or out of sorts. I mean, here, he gets arrested. They're ready to whip him. And he's like, uh, should you be doing this? Later, when he is still imprisoned, there are death threats. He just keeps going. Still later, he's on a ship, and the entire crew, the guys that know the sea, the guys that know the ship, the guys that are competent in this role, they are all panic-stricken. They're giving up. We've lost hope. And Paul's like, you guys need to get something to eat. And then he's collecting firewood and he's putting it on the fire and this viper comes out and bites his hand and he shakes it off and goes about what he's doing. I mean, every situation, Paul is like, there's this peace that just permeates all that he's doing. He's not worried. He clearly knows that God is with him in whatever he's doing. He doesn't know for sure what's up ahead. He doesn't know what's going to happen down the road. But he does know that God is with him and he's in him. He's not fretting over these situations. He's secure in his relationship with the Lord. And I don't know about you, but I find that challenging. You and I tend to fret over things that are far less significant than what Paul was facing in his life so many times. 
And yet Paul seems to not be rattled in the least. I want a faith, I want a confidence, I want to trust in God like that. All right, I'm going to tie this all together. I want to give you a few things to, that I think are important to take away. First, and, and I spent quite a bit of time on this already, but I just want to reiterate, when Holy Spirit speaks to us about a situation or event, we need to be, we need to be super cautious about how we handle that information. It was good that Paul's friends cared about him, and they didn't want to see him hurt, but Paul was the one who ultimately had to make the decision about what he's going to do. It wasn't their call. They didn't want Paul to go, go but he knew he needed to go. Second, people may well say or do unkind things to you because you're Christian. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Again, don't be rattled by it. It's going to happen. But third, you can have amazing peace even in the midst of trials. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. It is a it is a promise from him. It is a peace that is deeper and more real and more tangible than anything the world has to offer. That's a promise from the Lord. Receive it. Take it as your own. If you're, if you're afraid, if you tend to worry about things, take him at his word. Receive that shalom peace. It's yours. Let's pray. Lord, as we have heard your word opened to us today, there may have been times that we were convicted because of wrong thinking, wrong attitudes, wrong actions. Lord, forgive us for those. But we ask that you would strengthen us and take us forward in the things that you want us to be walking in. God, when, may we always be cautious as you speak into our lives. May we not uh, presume to know what the, the next step is without asking you, without coming to you and seeking your guidance and your counsel. Lord, we want to, to walk in the way that you want us to go and we're asking that you would always make that clear. Show us so that we are faithful stewards and servants of yours. And Lord, may we recognize that even if we are persecuted, that regardless of what we might face in our lives, that you are there, that you are giving us your peace, that you have promised that. And it's a promise that you will keep. And so Lord, may we see that peace in our lives. May we more and more walk in the peace that you have promised to give us regardless of what's happening in us or around us. We thank you that you will do that because you are faithful. Amen.